0: Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Franklin Roosevelt famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And that sounds good, but for most of us, fear ends up being a constant battle. All you have to do is watch the news or read The news or scroll through social media, and you are reminded of a thousand reasons for concern. Some of them Neil prayed for earlier. We have war, and governments, and disease, and famine, and disaster, and crime, and persecution, and they're all calling out to us to to fixate on these things and to cause fear in our hearts. And in many ways, fear is the opposite of faith. So we need this passage this morning to confront us. God intends for this text to enlarge our understanding, to enlarge our view of Christ, so that our faith might overrule fear in our hearts as we respond in a confident assurance to the person and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. So we turn our attention to Jesus and his disciples in a boat. This particular narrative is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you hear somebody refer to the synoptic gospels, that's what they're talking about. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this event. Jesus has just finished it in the context of Luke, teaching the crowd, calling them to commitment to himself, teaching them uh, and calling them to receive the word by faith. And now we have these four miracle stories in quick succession, succession demonstrating the identity of Jesus. And as we spend some time in these miracle stories, there seems to be an escalation of the threats. And that Jesus has come to overthrow these threats. Our passage this morning is a a storm, and then there's a demon, and then there's a disease, and then ultimately death. And so if you take all of these together, I think Luke is driving at this point, whether it be creation, or whether it be angels, or whether it be disease, or whether it be death, anything that stands opposed to Jesus loses. Anything that stands opposed to Jesus loses. In fact, this whole section is is building towards Peter's confession in chapter 9, that Jesus is the Christ. And so the challenge for us is to continually take hold of this truth that Jesus is more powerful than creation, more powerful than angels, more powerful than disease, and he has defeated death. And to believe then that nothing can overthrow Christ and nothing can overthrow his good plan or his will. And so faith becomes a, or fear becomes a competitor with our faith in terms of what we will believe, what we will rely on. Fear becomes a constant enemy seeking to pull us away and distract us from Christ. And we see that in our passage. Point number one this morning, our faith wanes as we give way to fear. Look in verses 22 through 24. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and, they, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. We'll pick up there again in a moment. But Jesus here, he, he orders his disciples to get into the boat that they might cross the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes when you're reading your Bible, it may say Lake Gennesaret. It's the same lake. The surface of this lake sits some 600 feet below sea level. And for some reasons that I don't understand and don't care to learn, that means there's storms that can arise quickly on this lake. And so there's, it wasn't uncommon to have violent storms on the Sea of Galilee that could sort of arise out of nowhere and can quickly turn, turn calm waters into tumultuous waters. And so the disciples and Jesus, they get into this boat. It's likely a, a fishing vessel, which would have been large enough to hold Jesus and his disciples. That's a pretty large boat. But Luke seems more interested in, in sort of getting to the action. He spends one verse kind of letting you know they're out on the water. And then suddenly, and I think that's the idea in the text, the suddenness of this storm in verse 23, it, it hits. There's a sudden, ferocious storm that, that arrives seemingly out of nowhere. And so I don't know what you do in a boat to prepare for a huge storm, but the disciples did not have time to prepare at all. They didn't have time to do any of that. The storm then is so strong that the waves are overflowing are over the edge and beginning to fill uh, the boat, and no amount of bailing seems to be helping at all. So again, given that it's large enough to fit 13 people, that's Got to be a decent sized boat, but it's no match for the wind and the waves and the storm that has arisen suddenly. And so, this is by all accounts and by all appearances a very dangerous situation. Even the experienced fishermen on board are frightened, they're fearful. They understand the seriousness and the significance of what's going on. These are seasoned professionals, and they are worried. When I was teaching this different text, same story, at Vacation Bible School, I said, if you're flying on an airplane and you're a little bit scared, that's okay. But if the pilot is running down the aisle saying we're all going to die, that's a problem that's when you are in danger. And here's what we have. Seasoned, professional fishermen thinking this is it. And while all of this is going on, Jesus is asleep. Now some of you are undoubtedly hard sleepers, but this is a whole different level. Jesus is asleep during a storm in which waves are coming into the boat. And so... One thing I think we see in this text is that Jesus is indeed truly human. He gets tired and he sleeps due to exhaustion and perhaps some other reasons we'll look at in a moment. But Jesus did truly and indeed take on humanity and the, the, the weaknesses, not, not sinfulness, but the weaknesses associated with humanity. And so as we move through this text, it's encouraging to remember that the one that we are called to trust, the one that we are called to rely on, is not only the one who stills the storm, but he can truly sympathize with us in our weakness as one who wrestled with human weakness and was even tempted in every way like we are, the book of Hebrews tells us. And so the disciples, you can almost imagine them sort of frantically bailing water, bailing water, like waking up Jesus is is sort of the last resort in their repertoire. So at the last moment, they decide they're going to wake up Jesus. And when I say that Jesus has been tempted in every way like us, it includes being woken up from a nap unnecessarily. I can't think of a harder time to please God than when someone wakes you up from a nap, unnecessarily. They wake up Jesus, and Jesus' rebuke then, in verse 25, clues us into the fact, and we're going to get to the rebuke, we're going to get to the stilling of the storm, but Jesus' rebuke in verse 25 there, clues us into the fact that the disciples aren't seeing clearly. They were only seeing the immediacy of their circumstances and the physical danger that was present. They missed some important truths about the one who was sleeping during the chaos. So I'd like to pause for a moment and to consider then if Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. Where is your faith, Jesus says? We should consider how then fear and faith interact. Fear, in general, is our response to the loss or potential loss of something that we care about. Fear arises in our hearts when we may lose something that we care about. And so there's something called, or or we might call a natural fear. Not all fear is sinful. We might call this a non-sinful fear we are called to value our lives as gifts from god so the faith-filled response to our bodies is not to treat them harshly or recklessly or or we could care less whether we live or die the bible doesn't give us sort of this mentality of put yourself in all kinds of unnecessary danger because who cares we're called not only to care for our bodies but we care for our families and neighbors And so when those are in danger, there can be a right fear, a a response to that. We want to be good stewards of the things we have. So we don't get super excited when a wildfire is ripping near our house. There's an appropriate fear that can be expressed there as well. So whether it's fear of loss from accidents or pain or enemies or disasters, that, that threaten our lives, our families, our neighbors, our stuff, that there, there can be an appropriate, fearful response to that. Even our Lord Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled prior to his crucifixion. Now Jesus was about to experience something that, that we will never know, uh, praise the Lord, we will never know uh, what exactly that entailed. He was going to bear the full weight of God's wrath. And so given he was about to experience something greater than we can ever imagine, I don't want to make a one-to-one correlation, but nonetheless, Jesus is distressed in the garden to the point of sweating drops of blood. And this was the appropriate response. This was the appropriate response for the moment, and we know that because Jesus responded in this way. To say otherwise is to question the righteousness of Jesus. And I'm not not going there. But, like, like most things, our response is often sinful. This type of fear... Not, not a, you could say a non-sinful fear motivates you to act in ways that please God. It motivates you to act, but you're not overly preoccupied. You're not overly anxious or worried. So there's a sinful fear. This type of fear undermines the good care of God. It is an assumption that God won't take care of me, so I've got to take matters into my own hands. Like the disciples in our text, sinful fear fails to see beyond the immediate circumstance. God's grace, God's goodness, God's nearness to me, they're swallowed up by my circumstances, and all I can see is that which is putting me in peril, whatever the calamity might be, whatever the trial might be. One later Puritan said this, If men would but dig to the root of their fears, they certainly find unbelief there. The less faith, still the more fear. Fear is generated by unbelief, and unbelief strengthened by fear. And therefore all the skill in the world can never cure us of the disease of fear till God first cure us of our unbelief. He says, commenting on this passage, Christ therefore took the right method to rid his disciples of their fear by rebuking their unbelief. Sinful fear flows from unbelief. It flows from a lack of trust, but it can manifest itself in all sorts of ways. Perhaps even panic attacks for you, or maybe it's an an obsession with safety, to the point where you've just adopted a no-risk-taking policy whatsoever. Or maybe in your mind, it's just a constant uh, obsession with worst-case scenario. What could go wrong here dominates your thinking. It could be anxious feelings that limit you from functioning normally or from loving your brother or sister in Christ. So it's worth then stopping and considering, what's my normal response to threats or trials or calamity that might arise? What is my normal response to danger or the potential of peril? We can turn to Christ when our fear overrules our our faith and we are obsessing. We can turn to Christ, confess our sinful fear, confess to Him our lack of trust, depend on Him, then for the grace to walk in faithful obedience to the Lord. We want to grow in our faith here. We want a stronger, more robust faith. And in God's grace, this passage points us to Christ in some significant ways that that are meant to bolster our trust in him even in the face of distress. So point number 2 this morning our strength our faith is strengthened as we learn to believe in the power, presence and promise of Christ. Look at the second part of verse 24 through the end of the passage. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm he said to them where is your faith and they were afraid and they marveled saying to one one another who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him you know i'm not much for alliteration but it seemed to actually work from this text the power the presence the promise of jesus i thought about throwing plan in there because it starts with a p but then I remember the goal isn't just to stack words, it's teach the text. So after the disciples woke Jesus up, he rebukes the wind. Now some have tried to read into this some kind of demonic influence over the wind because Jesus rebuked the wind the same way he rebukes Pharisees. I don't see that in the context, I don't see Luke driving at that idea. Instead, the idea is that Jesus' authority is over all creation. So when we see a storm, or we're caught in a hailstorm, we might sing, rain, rain, go away, but it doesn't work. Jesus here rebukes the storm, and it listens. See the result in the text. It wasn't that the storm passed Kind of quickly, and you're like, did that work? Was that actually Jesus? There was no question in the mind of those on the boat that, that Jesus' words are that which caused the storm to cease. Jesus speaks. He tells the storm to stop, and it stops. He tells the waves to cease, and they cease. And the disciples go from, Master, we're perishing, to glassy seas in an instant because the authority of Jesus extends over creation we'll get to the rebuke in, in a moment but notice the response of the disciples they are afraid and they marvel this is the true sense of fear that they should have had from the beginning Knowing who Christ is and what he has come to accomplish, they they ought to have had a fear of God that recognized God's control over all of nature. And what happens in the text is, is Jesus speaks the way Yahweh speaks in the Old Testament. Jesus speaks the way the Lord speaks in the Old Testament. And what's arising from the text is an issue of Jesus' identity. That's what the text is driving at. Jesus is Lord. It is Yahweh in the Old Testament who rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And they went across on dry ground as though through a desert. It is Yahweh who rules over nature. In Psalm 107:29, it's the Lord, Yahweh, who made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord, Yahweh, for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. The activities and the power attributed to the Lord in the Old Testament are demonstrated here by Jesus. So the disciples are getting a glimpse into this fact that Jesus shares the same nature as Yahweh, he, he shares the same essence as the Lord. We pointed out Jesus' humanity earlier in falling asleep. Here we see Jesus' divinity on clear display because it's the Lord who speaks and the waters are hushed. Weather is not given into the hands of mere mortals. So they wonder, who is this? They didn't have a passage like we have in Colossians 1 which is lay out really clearly that Jesus is the creator of all things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. They didn't have Colossians 1, that all things were created by him and through him. So you can imagine the disciples seeing Jesus demonstrate the authority of God with the power of his voice. And that brings us back to the rebuke that Jesus gives to the disciples while they're in the boat. As they sit astonished at the sea of glass, Jesus interrupts the silence. He says, where's your faith? Where is your faith? Now, this is a rhetorical question. The disciples didn't leave their faith on shore. It's a rhetorical question where Jesus is pressing them about the necessity of their holding fast, of their ongoing trust and faith in Him. The disciples ought to be able to rest in God's care and trust in Jesus' ability to care for them. Why? Because Jesus is Lord, and he's just demonstrated this, and he's demonstrated it earlier. But also, they should have known that Jesus has has come for a purpose, and he has yet to fulfill this purpose. In other words, they should have relied on the promise of Christ. It seems that another reason that Jesus was asleep in the boat Not only was he fully man and exhausted due to his ministry, but Jesus is asleep because he trusts the Lord and he is confident that he will indeed fulfill that for which he was sent. His hour had not yet come, Jesus would say elsewhere. The purpose for which he came could not be thwarted. It could not be overthrown by a storm, even a storm that arose out of nowhere. A storm where Jesus can just say, knock it off, and it knocks it off. That's not going to get in the way of Jesus fulfilling his purpose, of Jesus fulfilling his will. And when Jesus said, let's go to the other side of the lake, he meant, we're going to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let's see if we can make it. Let's see if we can survive this. So for the disciples then, the, the lack of faith, I, I, I don't think the lack of faith is that they woke him up or, or even that they, they cried out for him to rescue him. I think that's, that was probably the right response. I think the lack of faith is thinking we're all going to die. The lack of faith was, was thinking that they were about to perish, that something, even a storm, could oppose Jesus and win. That's their lack of faith that something could oppose Jesus and win. Their lack of faith was that they thought that Jesus might die in a lake before he finishes the purpose for which he was sent. So we can imagine poor Peter here. He's learning his lesson. Nothing can oppose Jesus. Nothing's going to take the life of Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to die, and Peter says, no way, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So poor Peter is still learning here. But it brings up an interesting point for us. If everything that opposes Christ loses, and if Jesus dies at the end of this gospel, which he does, we must conclude, and obviously we can pull from other texts and make this really clear, but we must conclude that Jesus died willingly to accomplish his desired purpose to fulfill the will of God, to purchase salvation for sinners, to purchase for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus would say it explicitly elsewhere that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. When I was a young Christian, I can remember the the first time somebody referred to the cross as divine child abuse. He said, if if the cross is Jesus pouring out His wrath onto His Son, then that's divine child abuse. It's meant to be sort of an emotional appeal that sickens us and drives us away from the doctrine of the atonement. But it's passages like this that remind us that Jesus wasn't some helpless little baby, that He is the the second person of the Trinity, it's, it's impossible for us to view Jesus as some helpless little child that gets abused by his father. He is one with the father. He is one with the spirit. And from eternity, they've planned to accomplish this salvation through the death of Christ. He came willingly and gave his life willingly. He laid it down in his time of his own volition and will because this was the purpose for which he came. And he had promised to accomplish this salvation. So as we think about, then, calamity in our own lives, we too can rely on the promises of God, knowing that his purpose cannot fail. It cannot fail. Of course, it doesn't mean we can sort of rip things out of context and make them say things they don't mean and sort of hold God responsible for these, these promises. But as we read Scripture and as we interpret it properly and we find these promises that are given to God's people, that are given to us, we can take that promise to the bank. We can rely on it because nothing can overthrow the purpose and the will of God. And if He has purposed something, it will come to fruition. His promises stand because of His power and because of His faithfulness. His promises stand because of His power and because of His faithfulness. These two go hand in hand as we seek to have confidence that God will indeed do what He promised to do. If the Lord were powerful but not faithful, He, well, he wouldn't be the Lord. But if he, were, if he were powerful and not faithful, we couldn't trust him to keep his promises. Our, our trust would rightfully waver. Can I trust this? He didn't come through last time. And, it, and if God were faithful and not powerful, and again, I know each of these sort of render God not God anymore if they were true. These are the very things that make God God or part of it anyways. Anyways. If he were faithful but not powerful enough to keep his word, we couldn't trust his promise. Because then then we'd be wondering, can he come through with his purpose? Can he do what he actually set out to do? If there were forces that could overthrow God, or there were forces that could overthrow the purpose and plan of God, then we would rightfully waver in our trust and in our faith. So we strive then to trust this glorious God who is both sovereign and faithful to do all that he promised to do. He's, he's unchanging. He's not going to change tomorrow. You don't have to wonder if he's going to be different tomorrow, if his promises are going to be different tomorrow, or if his purpose is going to be different tomorrow. He's, he's, he's unchanging. He's sovereign, and he's faithful to do what he promised to do, and therefore we can trust him. Our faith can be bolstered because of His character and His nature. We should trust Him because of His power and His faithfulness. I think Jesus asleep in the boat even pictures the trust and confidence one can take when they know they're in the care of the Father. Jesus asleep in the boat pictures the trust and confidence one can take when they're in the care of the Father. Sleeplessness in scripture is often associated with a lack of assurance of God's care. Consider Psalm 127 verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Perhaps as Jesus dozed off in that boat, knowing that a, a storm could arise, he thought of Psalm 48. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. So there's a, there's a fear that manifests itself in, in anxious toil or in restlessness or sleeplessness. Maybe it's not a, a calamity that you most fear, but maybe there's this pressure to perform at work and it keeps you up at night. Maybe you're less afraid of physical safety and more afraid of failure or being seen as weak or needy, so you might be anxious or restless or even sleepless. To those of us that are marked by this sort of fear, Jesus asks, where is your faith? And reminds us, given that He is in control, even as we rest, even as we sleep, and even as we turn over our day and, and trust that we can rest. We can trust Him. Maybe some of us here this morning need to set out to memorize Psalm 4, 8. Again, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You can rest because God doesn't. Lastly, we can take heart, then, in the presence of God, the nearness of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever had to follow or serve under a panicky boss, but it's hard to follow someone when every little bump in the road throws them into a tizzy. And so here, it's, it's good for us to know that the one we follow, Christ, is not anxious about a storm. He's not panicking in our darkest hour. He is not fretting about how he will use calamity and trial to demonstrate his glory, not only to us, but to the world. It's good news to know that he's using all of this for his glory and for our good. And it's good news to know that he is near us in our distress. He is near us in our trouble. One of the Overarching themes of the Bible, one of the, the big narratives of the Bible as you read it, is that God intends to dwell among his people. God intends to dwell among his people. We see it in the garden as Adam and Eve shared fellowship with God. We see it in Israel as God manifests his, his presence to them in a pillar of fire by. Day and a a cloud, wait, you you get it. Pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day and later when the temple is built, the presence of the Lord is there. We see it in the incarnation of Christ where he comes to this earth and dwells among men to accomplish salvation. We see it in the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church as he takes up residence among his people or in his people. We see it in the kingdom as Jesus reigns among the nations, and we see it in the eternal state, as you read the end of Revelation, that that the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. And one of the many blessings then, one of the many benefits, and we could go any number of directions here, but it's that we can find hope in that which threatens us, knowing that God is with us. We can find hope in that which threatens us, knowing that God is with us. We don't want to just let that fall flat as some kind of Christianese. But we should take heart, knowing that God is with you in your trials. God is with you in your suffering, so that you can can do what Jesus just got done preaching about, that you can hold fast to the truth, and you can endure with patience so that your faith might walk through trials instead of being revealed to be uh, false faith. God is our strength and our refuge, the psalmist says, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar with foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We will not fear because God is a a help in times of trouble. We can trust the Lord with the calamity that we face. We can trust His promise that He will complete that which He has begun in you. The hope of Christ is that He will either deliver us from peril or deliver us from calamity or we're given grace to endure through it to bear up underneath the calamity or the peril, or by death we are brought home to be with Christ forever. Jesus wins either way. And there will come a day. There will come a day for each of us here that death comes for us. And and death will appear to have won the day. But death is simply doing the bidding of the Father at that point and bringing us into his presence. Brothers and sisters, you can have faith and trust and hope even as you face death. The last enemy, even as we face death, we might trust God. You know, one of the things that makes Christians weird, and we are weird, is that we sing about death. Think about the obsession in our culture with either, either eternal beings like vampires or, or werewolves who seem to, they're, they're sort of immortal until they die a very particular way, or zombies who come back to life. Everything in our culture pushes against even thinking about the finality and the reality of death. And as we gather, we sing about it, not because we love death, but because we love Christ, and we know that He has defeated death on that cross. Think about some of these songs that we sing. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. So it would be really cool if I was a good singer and I could sing these to you, but I'll spare you. We just sang Amazing Grace. When, well, we didn't sing this verse, but <laughs> when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess with the veil a life of joy and peace. A mighty fortress, let good and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. O God, our help in ages past. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, soon bears us all away. We fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. O God, our help in ages past our hope for years to come, still be our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross this great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. How can we sing about death? Because of Christ. Again, we hate, we hate death. But we know that Christ has defeated it. We look to the faithful watch care of our Father and, and the, the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, as the Spirit works in us to grow our faith and to trust Him even in the face of death. And we long for our eternal home. And we trust Him because He is good. And ultimately, we know that even death turns out for good for the believer based on the cross of Christ, based on the mission for which Jesus has come to accomplish here. The Apostle Paul, whom Luke was a close associate with, even as he travels in the book of Acts, you see Luke and Paul together at times. Paul pointed to the cross as the concrete evidence that God is always working for the good of his people and that he is not withholding any good thing from us and that ultimately nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. It's not that these things aren't real. Verse 36 says, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All that stands opposed, all that stands opposed to Christ and His purpose and His plan, loses. You will never be forsaken. You will never be forsaken if you come to Christ and you rely on Him for your salvation. If you belong to Him, You can trust Him because of who He is. You can trust Him because He will fulfill all that He has promised to you. And you can trust Him because He is near you even in the midst of your tribulation. And we can know that nothing will separate us from His love. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled recognizing that it's not the the greatness with which we come before you that secures us its that Christ is able to overcome every obstacle. Lord, may you remind us of that. May you humble us. May we rely more on you this week as we seek to face a sin-cursed world. When we are tempted to fear, Lord, may we trust that nothing gets in the way of your purpose and your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.